vaunted of all the venues on the legendary Edinburgh Fringe, which started in 1854. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson was the first performer on the Fringe. He did a show called My TB and Me. And uh, that's how it all began. Uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, there was a, an animated performance the second year, and then the third year they complained that everything had gone too commercial. They wouldn't let Charles Dickens play here because he was a sellout. Now, the festival's been going on a long time, and they've been writing the same article about it every goddamn year of the festival that I've ever been here. Um, they also began building the tram in the 1800s, <laughs> and the tram will one day be finished. It's been an endless uh, operation, this building of this tram that goes from, I think, the airport to the Leith, and uh, I was walking by it today, and we were walking down Crean Street, and I couldn't help but notice that the contractor's name who's working on the tram is Crummock. Yeah, emphasis on the crumb. They put the uck in pillock, and they put the crumb in crummy. Uh, a bunch of guys standing around watching each other and then digging up concrete with no masks on and shits flying everywhere and then watering the street down. 776 million pounds for a fucking tram. And the people of Edinburgh are going to be so proud when it's done. Uh, especially the homeless people and the junkies and the poor babies. They're going to be the proudest of all because they're going to be like, I wish I could take the tram, but I haven't any money. But look at it gleaming as it goes past me. Oh my god, I'm so glad that white people can live in corporate glory forever. This is the best day ever of my ah crunch. Um, the one best part of the tram not being built yet is that unlike Amsterdam, you can't be hit by it. You can stand right in the middle of the goddamn tracks and pull your pants down if you want, like Braveheart, and no tram comes. And there's fantastically on the bus shelter a really sad one on Queen Street that says this bus shelter is no longer available or whatever. Like, no shit. It's surrounded by fucking debris like Prague in 1939 or something, man. Yeah, no, you can't uh, have that. But I love it here. There's some, you know, the stunning majesty of the castle silhouetted against the sky. The torches set ablaze at night. The fireworks over the tattoo. The majesty of Holyrood House and the ruined abbey. The fabulous greenery of Carlton Hill as you ascend to the top to look at the incompleted Acropolis. I don't know if our people who are out there listening in Proopcast land, if you've never been to Edinburgh before, you really must come because... Uh, Carlton Hill is, 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 is a real stop And uh, at the top of it They started to build an Acropolis To celebrate um, Europe's victory over Napoleon And uh, they never finished the Acropolis So it's half an Acropolis Which is Scotland in a fucking nutshell <laughs> So Scotland is often Or, or, or Edinburgh is often referred to As uh, the, the Athens of the North I prefer to think of it as the Stockholm of the South There was just as many Vikings here, for goodness sakes. Um, No, Calton Hill is really stunning. 
Although I haven't gone up on this trip. We did go to Hollywood House, and we've been all around. Um, the Leith is, is, is beautiful. Uh, the Firth of Forth. Yeah, that's the fun part for Americans. There's things called the Firth of Forth. What's a Firth? I don't know. What's a Forth? Fuck if I know either things. I, I know that's not the third of third, and it's not the second of fourth or whatever. It's the third of fucking Firth of Fourth. And then on Broughton Street, hilariously, um, a, a pub called the Firth of Froth. <laughs> We've moved one letter and we've created humor. It's called a pun. Don't fucking knock it. It's better than improv. Here we go. The festival goes on and on. This is my last night here. We'll be going back to London tomorrow, but I've had a wonderful time while I was at the festival. I've seen so many awesome people. If you haven't seen the Lost Voice guy, go see the Lost Voice guy because he is a riot. Um, his name is Lee, and he had cerebral palsy. He cannot speak, so his whole act is out of a fucking computer, and it is fucking genius. It really is. If I could use the word fucking as an adjective more, I would think I would do him more of an injustice than I even meant to do. He is marvelous. Let me put it that way. And redolent with wit. I think you'll go in one way and come out another if you know what I mean I mean by your own mindset I don't mean you'll go in one way and then you'll come out bent over backwards or whatever you'll come in on two feet and you'll walk out on all fours panting like a, a German shepherd uh, 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 he's fantastic uh, I want to thank everybody who's uh, helped us out while we were here We uh, Karen Korn who uh, runs the gig and Rosie and Neil Fiona Will Hannah Emma everyone uh, uh, um, oh kittens I've just forgotten her name she's going to man the mic later Kate Kate, Kate, who's been here. I've had so much help from everybody uh, at all my venues here, and I want to thank you for that. I know you guys don't like sentimentality, but tough shit. I'm a middle-aged white guy, and I get to be sentimental now. <laughs> You're lucky I'm not crying. <laughs> and I had some chips. And then, then usually I would have them with salt and vinegar, but she put sauce on them, and I didn't know what it was. And then it, it was brown, and it looked like it came out of a buffalo, and I started to cry, and then I... <laughs> We were over on Broughton Street, and uh, Broughton is uh, one of the cute boutique streets around here, and uh, there's a newsletter at the liquor store there. Surprise, I was at the liquor store on Broughton Street. <laughs> what were you doing on Broughton Street? Getting a delightful spot of lunch, or perhaps some brunch, or maybe visiting one of the health food stores? Oh, there's booze. And um, as you know, booze is good times. If you're listening out there in vodcast land, by the way. You may want to pour yourself one right now, and especially if it's really late at night or early in the morning. I think going to sleep wicked drunk makes you feel so good when you get up. And secondly, uh, when you wake up, you're like, fuck, I feel shitty. But then you know you're going to feel better. And by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, at, at 8 a.m., you'll, you'll be like, I'm never going to drink again. I can't believe I did that. Why did I smoke 35 silk cuts, and why did I drink 55 fucking pints last night? And then at 4.30 in the afternoon, you're like, I could eat some beef and tomato crisps. Maybe just a small dress, uh, jam. Uh, that's what's uh, the excellent part about alcohol. It gives you the false courage to keep drinking it day after day. And if you have any weed, uh, fucking light it up, dude. Well, I'm about to. Well, light it up, dude. So I'm on Broughton Street, and, uh, and they have a little news magazine there. And it's called, and I can barely get this out, and this is why I love you here in Scotland, Spurtle. <laughs> oh, Gross. I've got spurtle all over me. I can barely clean this off. I hardly know you. We just met in the men's room. Why did you do that? What does spurtle mean? It's a wooden stick you stir your porridge with. Thank you. I get the idea that it isn't by the laughter of the crowd. Is it a wooden stick or is it what you wipe off the wooden stick after you're... 
uh, spurtle. Is it really? That's what it is? That's fantastic. Uh, porridge, to translate to Americans, because we're uh, super parochial and literal, um, is like breakfast cereal that's warm in a bowl, like oatmeal or whatever. You've heard of peas porridge hot, peas porridge cold, peas porridge stirred by spurtle three days old. Uh, spurtle is a Broughton's independent stirrer. Oh, you're right, see? If I'd read the banner underneath, I wouldn't have doubted your veracity in any way. I guess I owe you about as big an apology as I've given anyone I've ever had social intercourse with. <laughs> you, you, you guided me toward the giant wooden stirrer that's, that mushes my porridge, and I spurtled all over that idea. Uh, Broughton's independent stirrer. Free, it says. Uh, Under siege from seagulls is the first article. <laughs> I'd like to take you, if I may, on a very strange voyage. <laughs> Under Siege from Seagulls. No, the movie The Birds wasn't shot here. It was shot in Bodega Bay and in San Francisco. It's one of the Bay Area Hitchcock films. I think it might be one of two or three, because whatchamacallit, uh, 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 Vertigo is also takes place in San Francisco and in Northern California. Um, but he could have shot The Birds here, because seagulls are fucking running wild. <laughs> Stand by for this article. You hear them all the time. Even in the flat I'm living in, I hear them wheeling and keening every morning. And then my favorite noise, they make. When they laugh at each other. And you see them grab garbage from each other. On top of this building is a bar. And every night I go to the bar and I sit for 20 minutes. And I look at the sky. Because I'm trying to slow time down. The older I get, the more I don't want to rush through everything. I mean, like tonight. There's no jokes. It's just arid. But soon, one day, we can all hope. Um... But like I get here and I think, oh, I don't want the night to be over. So I look at the sky and I watch the clouds go by and the seagulls fight each other for garbage right over the building here. And it's fantastic because last night I saw one dive bomb the other one, get the bread out of its mouth and then swoop down and grab the bread. And as it flew away, it went. <laughs> like, and I was like, really? You fucking dick. <laughs> fantastic. No one's paying attention. It's a bunch of actors up there. They're just talking to each other. Oh, darling. <laughs> Three stars. I can. <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have done it Next year I'm doing Alistair Crowley uh, <laughs> Under Siege from Seagulls To make this better I'm going to read it as Jeremy Irons And To make it even better than that I'm going to wear the Jeremy Irons mask That was given to me in London. Yeah, hooray. hooray for things that are funny Let's hope that gets in there I have to wear my glasses under the mask Because I can't see shit Oh, I never looked at this before. This is from a, this company that makes the Jeremy Irons mask. It's called Party-rama. Which is part, if, you, if there's any Hindus in the room, it, it is my mantra. Party-rama, 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 party-krishna, party-krishna, party-rama, party-rama. Under siege from seagulls. Noisy and intimidating neighbors made many Broughton residents' lives a misery last month. The problem stemmed from seagull chicks. <laughs> On roofs, basement steps, and in back greens, fouling whatever possible, and screeching to their circling and aggressively defensive parents. Um, isn't it the job of seagull parents to defend their chicks? Uh, I think that the aggressive and defensive parents have every reason in a town where people are digging up the street endlessly till the end of time. 
And sometimes the level of garbage is suspect, if you know what I'm saying. There was a dead bird in front of a church on Broughton Street for four days this week, you guys. Finally, my wife said today when we walked by it, I miss that dead bird. (laughs) Someone had finally picked up the fucking rotting carcass of the dead bird. Sanitation is not the highest order of business here in Edinburgh. There's also been a bottle of wine in front of my flat for two days, and I feel so shitty about leaving it there. Janice Donaldson of 4th Street had three chicks at ground level near her flat and despite the hot weather was soon reluctant to go out. Oh, the weather's so hot. I'm sitting in my flat here having a cup of tea. I hear you out there, you fucking bastards. Can I go out? Those chicks are so defensive and aggressive. Wheeling and keen and eating all the garbage out there. Oh, God. I'm starving to death. All I've got left is two tins of baked beans and an iron brew. I've got to go out to Broughton and get me sustenance. No, I can't go out. Her tomcat was similarly anxious. Janice, you mustn't go out. You'll be fucking eaten to death. The seagulls are waiting to feast off your carcass. It's your enormous head. They think it's a pizza. Because it's so round. She suspects many of the troublemakers originate from Fourth House. We're calling baby seagulls troublemakers. Do you think seagulls act like that? Like they have gang names and shit? We're called the flying dickwads. We're called the shitters. (laughs) But I don't know When you're a gull You're a gull all the way From your first cigarette To your last dying day When you're a gull Let them do what they can You've got seagulls around You're a family man You're never alone Cause there is always rubbish Bum bum You'll shit on a girl and hope that she doesn't publish. Anecdotal evidence suggests a worsening of the problem. Anecdotal evidence. I heard from Janice there's been some baby chicks outside her house. I heard a wee story the other night that made me flesh crawl. Winged beasties, you see. The kind that can swim and they don't care whether they eat fish or human flesh. There was a wee baby laying on the ground And the seagull swooped down and attacked it Because all babies look like Hitchcock (laughs) The Council of Pest Control Says the situation is no different than last year Brackets Not much comfort there then (laughs) Although CEC officers can remove seagull nests From complainants' own roofs in May it may take five or six removals before the message sinks in. That's the thing about seagoing birds. They rarely heed the message from humans. Two different wavelengths. That's why we can never... Thank you. That's why we can never, ever communicate. Because I'm a boy and you're... a gull. They are powerless to intervene at other times. The birds do not count as vermin and enjoy protection under the Wildlife and Countryside Act of 1981. In the seagull world, there is no such thing as an ASBL. In the seagull world, there's no such thing as fucking 
Jeremy Irons or people or who cares? Because they're seagulls. You know what they want to do? Eat garbage and shit on you. That's what they fucking want to do. And then get in fights with each other and laugh. <laughs> Meanwhile, gullproof bags and wheelie bins across the new town, last promised in April to be implemented by the end of July, have still not materialized. <laughs> What's that unearthly glow over there? <laughs> oh my god. A gullproof wheelie bin is materializing. <laughs> I am from another dimension. I am the gullproof wheelie bin. I was promised to you last April, but I have been caught in a corporeal plane. <laughs> now I might finally take form as ectoplasm. I'm no, I'm melting. I'm going away. <laughs> I told you not to go outside. That was the cat. A CEC spokesperson told Spurtle that following the extension of consul... Hello. Uh, hello. Uh, yeah. This is a reporter. I'm calling from a publication called Spurtle. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm not familiar with your publication. Uh, aye. Yes, you see, we're a spoon that you stir your porridge with. <laughs> we're also a free newspaper over on Broughton Street. I'm doing an article on aggressive and screeching, circling, defensive seagulls. Is there another kind of seagull? Yes, there's the complacent kind that live in Glasgow. The kind that help you onto the bus and give you change. Following further extension of consultation, plans are progressing well. Maps are being prepared. And the new scheme should be in place sometime in August. Maps are being prepared. <laughs> All right, everybody. Now, this is a bit of a dangerous mission. Hawkins, do listen. I want you to take the point. Ferguson, I want you to take the drag line. We're going to try a circling maneuver around the baby chicks. I said, I've got a question. What is it? I'm afraid. That's not a question, that's a statement. There's no gold-proof wheelie bins. They simply haven't materialized yet. We're going to be out there on our own. Mrs. Donaldson is still stuck in her house. She hasn't been out since April when they were promised to move those fucking wheelie bins. Uh, George the Five Park to be closed throughout the summer. With very regrettable timing, the eastern end of George Five Park will be closed for the entire school summer holiday. New play equipment, domino, roll-up, rodeo board, and bubbles, which, by the way, is the name of my new children's group. Domino, roll up, rodeo board and bubbles. Hey, I'm Domino. It's good to see you, man. Hello, I'm roll up. Got any skins? <laughs> I'm rodeo board. Get on my back and ride me to heaven, y'all. I'm bubbles. Please fondle this. <laughs> and a seating area of terrace steps, boxed area above, are being installed after numerous unforeseen postponements earlier in the year. The work, which began in mid July, is expected to take between four and six weeks. Does nothing get fucking built here? How did you build all those castles? The expected finishing date for Holyrood Palace was 1395, but we postponed it to 1644. Uh, this one I thought was great. This is from the Briefly column on page three. Early evening customers were inconvenienced on 12 July when the ceiling collapsed at the other place. 
Three people were ambulanced to hospital to be checked and treated for head, shoulder, back, and foot injuries, and one deep arm wound requiring stitches. This was an unlucky interruption to what otherwise has been a highly successful start for Broughton Road's newest bar. (laughs) I'm trying to get my mind around how you measure success here in Scotland. Pardon me if it takes a few moments of cogitation. Let me get this straight. The other place just opened, and it's one of Broughton's most successful new bars. However, the other night, the ceiling fell down. (laughs) I I want a pint of IPA. I I can't. It's covered with dust right now. Well, that's a pretty unlucky interruption. Otherwise, this has been the best opening we've ever had. (laughs) Other than the lacerating head injuries, I've enjoyed the devil out of tonight. Your expectations are so low, you're like the Jews of the North Atlantic. (laughs) The ceiling falls and everyone's just like, ugh, why me? (laughs) Oh my God, it was otherwise unsuccessful. You know, we just measure things differently where I come from. Where I come from, if the ceiling of a restaurant collapses on the patrons and they have to be ambulanced to the hospital, that place isn't that popular for a while. People tend to stay away. Here in Scotland, oh, just walk over the rubble. Oh, look, an eyeball. Let's get some crisps. I saw a couple of beautiful acts while I was here. Um, I saw Stephen Burkhoff in An Actor's Lament with Jay Benedict and Andre Bernard. And if you've not seen it, you should uh, go to it. If you've never seen a Stephen Burkhoff play, uh, you have to see Stephen Burkhoff perform because he is amazing. Uh, I've seen many of his plays over, over the years here and in New York and in London and... I've had occasion to meet him and talk to him a few times, and he's extraordinary erudite. Um, the thing that he said the last week to hip everybody out there in podcast land, uh, he's been doing interviews ever since he got up here. And he's 73 years old, I think, 76, and he knows how to get in the paper. He said he was watching the BBC, which, by the way, for the people who live in America, the BBC is funded by taxpayers, right? In other words, it would be like if NBC was a national corporation and part of your tax money or license fee, excuse me, went to putting the programs on the air. So people have every right to bitch about what's on the BBC because you fucking pay for it. And the BBC shows things like, you know, America's sexiest dogs or whatever. Like, it's just fucking awful, right? The BBC shows shit that's just unconscionably... That wouldn't have been on MTV in the 90s. You know what I mean? That's where we've reached with the illiteracy level of television in general. But Stephen Burkhoff uh, did an interview and he said, I watched the BBC with tears in my eyes because... It was Bruce Forsyth and Dancing with the Stars and shit. And when I was little, it was Hamlet. And it was like, really? Every night it was Hamlet on TV? Really? Every night? They never had the two Ronnies or anything like that? There was never anything hacky in the old days? There was never Pinky and Perky at the Palladium? Yes, but when Pinky and Perky played, they'd, they'd sing Hamlet. <laughs> Neither a borrower nor a lender be, and don't forget... That was my impression of Pinky and Perky singing Hamlet. Thank you. Apparently, I know more about your fucking TV than you fucking people do. He also said that people who are on Twitter deserve whatever they get. And, yeah, fantastically misanthropic and misogynistic. And he also said uh, that Johnny Depp, in essence, basically isn't ready for the stage. That he did the movie The Tourist with him and that he was afraid of bumping into the wall and forgetting his lines. So the play is called The Actor's Lament. And no spoiler alert. What it is is three actors. And he takes out playwrights, critics, actors, movie actors, Henry Irving... Edmund Keene, 
the audience and every other goddamn element of the theater that you could possibly imagine. Auditioning, understudying, learning your lines the moment before you go on. It is an in-depth and powerful fucking look at the absolute million neuroses uh, and uh, exigencies uh, that are intrinsic in being an actor. He also has written it in verse. And everybody recites, oh, fuck yeah. So it's in the afternoon. It's down the assembly, right? We go in in the afternoon, and it's an hour-long play, and it moves like the wind, because Stephen Burkhoff does very demonstrative beats, right? Like, he would never just light a cigarette. It'd be like, it goes like, and then takes the cigarette out, and then, he, like, really is demonstrative on stage, right? Like, if you saw Shakespeare's villains, uh, his, his, um, his, his, you know, like, he really fucking acts it out. Ten minutes into the play, I hear this behind me. A dude is full on asleep, head down, like a bladder on a stick. You know, this one. And I look back behind me, like, could you? And the woman is sitting next to him, won't fucking do anything. And I was like, come on, you know? It's your responsibility as an audience member, if someone is asleep at a production, to touch their leg, okay? You don't have to shake them. You don't have to fucking touch them. Because he woke up when Burkhoff declaimed. The next time he woke up, Burkhoff went, no! Like that, and then he went, ah! Like that. And then another five minutes later, like, God damn it. It's an hour. You don't have a fucking hour's worth of attention span. Take some, have a coffee. You know what I mean? Take some meth. We're in Edinburgh. Score some, score some drugs. Bring a baby seagull with you. That'll keep you on edge. Holy Christ, the man's a genius. You can't give him a fucking hour without falling asleep and shit. But the woman looked at me and went like this. And I looked at her and I was like, and she... Get over your fucking shyness. If someone is snoring next to you and you played 20 quid to see the fucking play, go, oi, boom, and just fucking give them one in the ribs. That'll wake them up. If you have a pen or whatever, just stab them. No one agrees with me. I think that I think people should be allowed to sleep wherever they want, especially during a production. Uh, Anyway, it's fantastic, and, and really, you oughtn't miss Burkhoff. You oughtn't miss the chance to see him live, because this is exactly what he's talking about in the play. He talks about movie actors not being able to play live, and some can't. Uh, I saw a movie actor years ago, and I love this movie actor. Richard E. Grant is who it was. Richard E. Grant is, is fantastic in the pictures. I saw him do Algernon and the importance of being earnest. And he couldn't do the business. It wasn't that he was terrible. He just didn't have the presence. Dame Maggie Smith played Lady Bracknell. And so that was that. You know what I'm saying? You might as well be a fucking bucket of water because she is mopping the fucking stage with you, man. Maggie Smith does not take shit from anybody and no backseats. If you've even watched Downton Abbey, uh, what was her great line? They go, uh, well, they're going to come up for the weekend. And she goes, the weekend. <laughs> like she holds, baby, like Bob Hope. Let it lay there, man. So when it got to the big whip-around scene, you know, in, in, in Oscar Wilde, if you've ever seen The Importance of Being Earnest, uh, where they're talking about the, ha- you know, the baby was lost and the handbag, the handbag, the handbag, and it whips around and whips around. The dialogue goes round and round a bunch of times, and then it gets to her, and Lady Bracknell's supposed to go, a handbag, and usually people fucking give it the biggest hit ever. They try to knock it out of the park. A handbag! Maggie Smith, uh, frenzy, 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 frenzy on stage, gets to Maggie Smith. She goes, a handbag. <laughs> fucking solar plexus. The whole audience went, and I'm not dissing Richard E. Grant. I mean, watch with Nail and I or any one of a million movies and he's absolutely superb. But, and what I'm getting at is this, Burkhoff's in a lot of movies and he almost always plays a Russian general or an asshole. He's in the movie Under the Cherry Moon with Prince and yes, 
Under the Fucking Cherry Moon, not even Purple Rain, the sequel to Purple Rain, where Prince is a gigolo in the south of France. Stop me if you've seen this. Jerome is his valet, and Kristen Scott Thomas plays the sexy girl in it. When before she was a fine, fine actor, she plays kind of the bimboy. I think it's set in the 20s, but not really. It's one of those movies that's kind of all over the fucking yard. It's in black and white. There's a couple groovy jams in it. Uh, Christopher Tracy's in it, and what is it at the end? Once there were mountains. That one's good. Um, uh, but Burkhoff plays her dad in it, and he's like, the whole movie, right? Like, that's all he does. If you see him in any movie, he's got a mole on his forehead and a vein that comes out on it. He's in uh, uh, Barry Lyndon. Um, he's in Clockwork Orange. He plays the, the mean policeman who holds Malcolm McDowell uh, in the scene when they pick up Alex DeLarge, and he goes, uh, it must be a great disappointment to you, sir. He's doing an East End in that one, because he's from the East End. And he's chewing gum, and he goes, uh, you want me to hold him or you hit him? <laughs> and... Uh, then he's in, uh, oh my God, he's in a fantastic Avengers episode where he plays a bad guy. He's also in, is it Octopussy? Is that the one? He plays a Russian general Octopussy. He's also in Cindy Crawford's movie, Fair Game. Oh, fuck yeah. So his movie career is, how would you call it? Checkered. <laughs> Exciting in a way. I mean, who gets to work with Prince? So I ate dinner with him once and I said, you were in Under the Cherry Moon. And he went, yes. Terrence Stamp dropped out and I'm the same size as him. <laughs> I said, what was it like working with Prince? He went, the little man. You would do a take, and then you would hear the little man come on his boots. Clack, 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 clack. The little man. Fantastic. So you have to see him live because he is unbelievably engaging live. Don't deny yourself this opportunity because people pass away and then you don't get to see them. Like I saw James Brown before he died. I never saw Johnny Cash. I never saw Frank Sinatra. But I've seen Merle Haggard and I've seen Bob Dylan and I've seen the Rolling Stones. Before people die, it's really important to check them out once because you'll wish you did. Even if they're really old, they still have the goods. You know what I mean? Everyone I'm talking about is quite... Uh, advanced in their career and, and they're still bringing big time. Uh, speaking of which, my wife went to see Patti Smith and Philip Glass the other night over at that playhouse and they were doing a tribute to Allen Ginsberg and Allen Ginsberg's the immortal poet who wrote, I've seen the best uh, minds of my generation destroyed, what is it, naked, naked raving hysterical, I'm, like, I'm getting it wrong, naked raving hysterical, naked starving hysterical. Yeah, naked, starving, hysterical. Those are the opening lines to Howl. Now, I'm from San Francisco. My wife worked at City Lights. City Lights is owned by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the poet, who's still alive and is about 95 years old and basically just goes around the world being celebrated, uh, which is an awesome job for a poet. Most poets don't live long enough to be celebrated. They just die in obscurity or in an alley or something like that. But Lawrence Ferlinghetti started City Lights with his partner uh, back in the 50s. And um, if you ever go to San Francisco, you must go there and then go across the street to Vesuvius for a a pop, uh, a drink. And... um, Trust me, there's baby seagulls all over the fucking place. (laughs) But Ginsburg was part of the beat movement and an extraordinary poet, a Jew, a Buddhist, a queer, uh, a radical, a lefty. Uh, He would go on TV and have open discussion and fights with right-wing conservatives his whole life. He also uh, played music that was intolerably awful, uh, (laughs) as well as his exquisite poetry and and Howell and uh, Kaddish being two of his biggies. uh, he, he was a man of a, a, a unbelievable agile intellect and enormous range and a, influenced, I think, and um, was a cohort of Kerouac, uh, uh, Paul Bowles, Ginsburg, uh, Jane Bowles, whoever you can think of uh, from that, uh, William Burroughs, decidedly, from that era and, and uh, a, a really beautiful person and human being. My wife told me he was 
perfectly at ease talking to anyone he met. And he knew exactly when to break things off and make you feel like you were the most special person in the world and you'd be walking away going, that was great. And it's like you didn't realize that he cut you down, you know, that he ended the conversation because he was so zen. Um, in any case, they did his po- uh, poetry the other night. And Patty Smith is, you know, Patty Smith is groovy, right? I mean, back in the, uh, uh, in the punk days in New York, she lived with Robert Maplethorpe. She has an amazing career. And Philip Glass is just an astounding composer. I've had the unbelievable pleasure of doing a couple gigs, and I don't want to say with him. It's not like, ladies and gentlemen, Greg Proops with Philip Glass. No, it's a, <laughs> swirling glissandas of dick jokes and me just reading Jeremy Irons over the top of it. And so, oh, yes, they touched my knob. She touched me there. She touched me below the... <laughs> Uh, no, I've done a couple gigs with him for the ACLU, which is uh, uh, what we would call troublemakers, as opposed to Seagull troublemakers, uh, the American Civil Liberties Union. And uh, he's an extraordinary human being and, uh, and a superb composer. And they played together. And this is my, the best part. My wife said, oh, it's a fabulous concert. Uh, Patty was so great, and Philip is so amazing. And she read from Robert Louis Stevenson, because we're in Edinburgh, right? Now, I happen to be staying very close to where Robert Louis Stevenson grew up, right? And we went and looked at the door of the house, and we're like, ah! you know, that's how exciting it is. We also walked by the Conan Doyle pub and went, Conan Doyle was born here. Yay and shit. Now you guys are over it because you fucking live here. And all you can think about is the next person you're going to kick in the head when they're drunk. So (laughs) evidently the poetry's gone out of your lives and you're burned out and have nothing left. All you want to do is stir porridge with a spurtle and and, and complain about baby seagulls trying to live their fucking lives. So she said, she brought up, my wife goes, she brought up uh, Robert Louis Stevenson and went, uh, I went to his house today and, and looked at it and I'd like to read you a poem because in America when I was little, and obviously when Patti Smith was little, we were given a child's garden of verses as one of our first poetry books. That might have been the first poetry book a lot of Americans are introduced to. Now, uh, as I've said before on the show, we don't read poetry in America because it's not printed on money. So... <laughs> Uh, uh, she read that and then it, so uh, we're in the bar last night and it was after she saw the Patti Smith show and Steve Frost who you may know from Whose Line Is It Anyway the tall bald one uh, or, or as my favorite description of him here from a magazine called Get Your Crippled Ass Off My Porch that was here in Edinburgh years ago uh, called him uh, the beardy one whose name you can never fucking remember um, he, he would laugh if I said that to him he, he gave me the magazine that had the, I'll, I'll give you the entire quote because I loved it so much it was a magazine called Get Your Cripple Ass Off My Porch this was 96, 97 in there and uh, it was about comedy and they had gone through every comic on the fringe and savaged their ass and that's what made it so fucking funny and it said I'll tell you who's not funny any cunt and that's any cunt mine from whose line is it anyway <laughs> especially the tall beardy one whose name you can never fucking remember who swans into Bannermans every night like he fucking owns the place and that one made me laugh so hard then it says, no mention of Greg Proops. I wonder why. The next page, full page picture of me, cunt, in like 800 point. Yeah. I never stop laughing. I remember showing it to someone, and they were like, oh, wasn't your feelings hurt? I'm like, no. That's the highest honor in Scotland. <laughs> they noticed me. They remembered me. They registered me. You're a cunt, and you're nae funny. Uh... So we're up in the bar having a pop, uh, having a drink, and uh, up, up rolls, uh, uh, up rolls um, uh, Frosty. And he comes up to my wife, Jennifer, and goes, how was Patty Hearst? <laughs> <laughs> I never stop fucking laughing. Patty Smith and Patty Hearst are two distinct concepts, ladies and gentlemen. Although they both enjoyed great fame in the 70s, I think you'll find for very different reasons. Patty Smith was Patty Smith Smurth. 
Patty Smurth is their illegitimate child. Patty Smith and Patty Hearst had lesbian butt sex, and they gave birth to a child named Patty Smurth, who I am opening for on a tour here called the Baby Seagull Troublemaker Tour. Uh, our closing act is called Spurtle, and uh, it's going to be awesome. It's really going to be awesome. <laughs> Patty Hearst was the heiress who was kidnapped in San Francisco in 1973 and then was turned into a terrorist by a cell called the Symbionese Liberation Army. Later, the, the Los Angeles Police Department slaughtered all of them mercilessly in a giant conflagration that they said they couldn't avoid. Um, to give you an idea of what the 70s were like, people think there was terror now and shit like that. And what's his name? Oh, golly, I can't pronounce his name. Who was the, the, uh, the Chechen who's been arrested for the Boston ma uh, Marathon bombing? Charnev? How do you say his name? Okay, nobody. Fuck it. Whatever. I'll keep going. In any case, he was on Rolling Stone a couple weeks ago. They put his face on the cover. And what a shitstorm in America. How could they put a terrorist face on the cover of the Rolling Stone? Patty Hearst was on the cover of Time magazine. And at my wife's high school, they had a Patty Hearst lookalike contest. I mean, whatever. Uh, Patty Hearst was great. The Symbionese Liberation Army's slogan was, death to the fascist insect that preys upon the mind of the people. And there was a famous picture of her with a fucking automatic, you know, machine gun wearing a beret in front of a, a seven-headed fucking hydra serpent, whatever thing. And then she helped rob the Hibernia Bank in San Francisco on, uh, I think it was on Masonic and Geary. And uh, there's a photo of her from the, from the uh, security cameras with the fucking gun and everything. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, the 70s were cool. Not... And, by the way, you didn't have to be searched when you went into a bank. And they weren't chasing you everywhere. And they didn't fucking follow you all the time with their phones and shit like that. And there weren't security cameras everywhere all over the goddamn place like there are on this fucking island where you can't fucking go anywhere. The place, as Orwell said, when you go into the toilet, that's the one place you can be sure you're being watched on this fucking island. Uh, you guys like Big Brother more than anything else that could ever fucking happen here. I'm not saying America doesn't. Obviously, we're pioneering. But, um... Yeah, and the, the 70s had some good points, too. You could smoke inside like a grown-up and shit. Uh, and the crowd goes quiet. But, oh, smoking's bad, and baby seagulls are scary. I know. <laughs> How was Patty Hearst? She was great. The first part of the show where she robbed a bank, awesome. The second part where she was reindoctrinated in a closet, fantastic. The last act where she married her bodyguard and grew kids up, uh... So I wanted to talk about a couple of things, but before we do, let's get to this. Uh, we have lots of shows coming up here. If you want to email me, it's uh, smartestdataspecialthing.com. Sometimes we answer questions on the show. If you want to write me personally, it's fanmail4greg at gmail.com. And it may not have escaped your attention that Google confessed yesterday that anything on Gmail, they're uh, monitoring and spying on and giving over to the government immediately. So if you email me on smartest, I mean at fanmail4greg at gmail.com, please write something seditious. <laughs> Uh, I can't believe how horrible the people who run Google are. I've been trying to get everyone to boycott them, but we can't because they're just too omnipresent and shit. They gave uh, information to China, if you recall, when that first started. They've been so helpful and collaborative to the government in every way, in spying on our personal lives. What does this have to do with me, Greg? Do you have a child? Well, I do. Does your child go on the computer? Sometimes. Do they ever Google anything? Then Google is giving away what your child is Googling to the government and all the powers that be and all the corporations because they're watching us all the time. Why? 
because they're frustrated with us. Why are they frustrated with us? Because they're frightened of us. Why are they frightened of us? Because they're afraid we're going to have an independent thought and not do what they want and not toe the corporate line and not think we live in the best of all possible worlds because 1% of the fucking population has all of the goddamn wealth and the rest of us are left to fight over crumbs like fucking seagulls in the tram line. When they're spending $776 million on a useless fucking boondoggle that the buses were perfectly well capable of fucking handling, then you know exactly what's going on with corporations. The American defense budget is so extraordinarily fucking obscene that I can barely get to bed each night thinking about it, which is not exactly how I go to bed. I count um, predator drones. I mean, you gotta be fucking kidding me. I read this yesterday. So Gmail, the Gmail that, that people write me on personally, and I do read them all. I haven't answered them all lately, but I do read them all, uh, is completely monitored. And so just know that. Uh, let's see what's coming up. We'll be in Chicago at Up Chicago uh, on September 4th. September 6th, we'll be at the Howlin' Wolf in New Orleans. September 11th at Denver at the Comedy Works. September 16th, these are all podcasts. We'll be doing the Greg Proops Film Club at the Cinefamily in uh, devastatingly glamorous Hollywood. Uh, and we'll be showing the awesome 2000 film with Ian McShane, Ben Kingsley, and Ray Winstone called Sexy Beast. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's fucking a cracker. No, 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 no. Yes, 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 yes. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to turn this opportunity down. I'm afraid you're going to have to turn this opportunity. Yes! <laughs> September 19th, we'll be in Vancouver at the Fan Club. October 6th, we'll be at the Comedy Bar in Toronto. October 8th, I think I'm performing at a bar that sells marijuana in Toronto called The Underground. We'll get that settled. Uh, November 14th, we'll be in Calgary. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of Canadia coming up. And, uh, and I'm on the road with the Who's Line guys all over Canada. And November 30th, we'll be at the Bell House in Brooklyn. If you want to buy a T-shirt, uh, or we call power sheets, what these power sheets do is enable you to uh, defy the forces of evil. Say an aggressive baby chick seagull is coming toward you. Say you're drinking in a bar, and all of a sudden the ceiling is collapsing. All you have to do is aim your power sheet toward that, and it will recede immediately. <laughs> Only people that are cool that you want inside you are attracted to it. Everyone else that you want to fuck away, fucks away immediately. I've got... Um, um, a large, I hate the way they've written this, large female. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a large female here. It's a large female size t-shirt. Would you like that one, my precious love? Whoa, can you get it? Sorry, I didn't mean to throw it on the ground there. And then what have I got here? A small, a small man's. These are on really small. I'm going to give it to another girl. Over there. Are you all right? All right. You make, whoa, I'm sorry, darling. I didn't mean to throw it in your face. Uh, so if you want to buy them, that helps us out. We don't advertise on the show, as you may have noticed, and we don't charge you to download it. So if you want to buy a T-shirt or a power sheath, we will send them to this vaunted island. We also have Kittens McTavish hoodies. Uh, it's not a picture of kittens, but rather a rendering of kittens, as seen by the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, <laughs> you what? It's got, it does have evil eyes. I bought it at a Christmas fair. That's how you know it's evil. Um, <laughs> I want to talk ever so briefly, and then I want to take some questions here with the boring, preachy part. A couple of quickies here before we get uh, into it. Here's the boring, preachy part. Um, Halliburton, this is from a paper from uh, several weeks ago. Halliburton was the company that uh, uh, Dick Cheney, who was president of the United States during the Bush administration. <laughs> oh, yes, he fucking was. Um, he was the CEO of that corporation. Uh, George Bush asked him to lead a panel to, de to determine who he should have as his running mate when um, Bush ran in 2000. And Dick Cheney, at the end of several months of heading this panel, determined he should be the running mate. <laughs> 
Here's some of Dick Cheney's greatest hits. When Katrina hit, he went to Katrina five days later and stood there like this. And And a a doctor who had been administering to a lot of the dead and people floating around because of the unbelievable gross malfeasance and negligence of the American government. And it was the tipping point when the Bush administration finally wasn't popular anymore when they saw that they weren't going to do a goddamn thing for regular people. And that famous photo of Bush looking down at New Orleans from the plane three days after the hurricane had hit. And they had been advised the hurricane was hit and did nothing about it previously. At that moment, a doctor yelled, fuck you, Dick Cheney, to him, and he went, must be a Democrat. <laughs> and I was, not that funny? When dictators make jokes, it is always so funny. Hitler used to do that all the time. Must be a socialist. <laughs> Have him killed. Uh, Dick Cheney also, uh, during 9-11, was, where was he? Shopping for a house uh, in Virginia. Mm-hmm. When the jets hit. He was shopping for a house. When they wanted to have hearings over 9-11, they wanted to question Bush and Cheney separately so that they couldn't corroborate their stories and they wouldn't do it. And when they asked Dick Cheney, you have to come in and do this, uh, your vice president, he said, vice president's not part of the executive branch. Three days before uh, they handed over to Obama at the end of their term, Dick Cheney's office burned everything in it, all the records. Mm Mm-hmm. Just want to keep you up on current events and shit. And then if you may remember the day Obama was inaugurated in 2008, um, Bush was very genial on the day and very friendly. And the crowd chanted, na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, hey, hey, goodbye. Thousands of people at Obama's inauguration chanted that to Bush. And he just took it like a man. Cheney showed up in a wheelchair with a hat on and wouldn't shake Obama's hand. So that's who Dick Cheney is. He's really, really nice. He was also Secretary of Defense during the first Gulf War, that one that that settled so much. (laughs) Basically, what Dick Cheney is, is a harbinger of misery and doom for each and every one of us on the planet, because all of his goals are to take money away from the people who have money and to siphon it upwards to the people that he knows that are his friends and the corporations he runs. Halliburton was the company that did all the supplying for the Afghan and Iraq wars. It was the company he was CEO of. So there's nothing like conflict of interest. Don't even think about it. Nothing to see here. Move along. Halliburton pleads guilty to destroying Gulf evidence. Crews fight the deadly fire aboard BP's Deepwater Horizon rig. BP and Halliburton are locked in a legal battle and damages trial over the disaster. U.S. company Halliburton will plead guilty to destroying evidence relating to the 2010 Gulf of Mexico oil spill. You may remember that golden moment in American history that happened a few years ago that destroyed all of the wildlife in the Gulf and fucked up the oyster harvest and the shrimp harvest for all of those states, Mississippi, uh, Alabama, uh, 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 Louisiana, which are very poor states indeed. Um, BP had accused Houston-based Halliburton, its contractor of destroying evidence, and asked it to pay for all damage. The major oil spill three years ago followed a blast at the Horizon oil rig that killed 11 workers. Dick Cheney never came on TV and apologized for that because he doesn't work for them anymore. But you may remember the head of BP coming on and going, can I go home? Halliburton, uh-huh. A Halliburton subsidiary had agreed to plead guilty to one misdemeanor violation associated with the deletion of records. Blah, 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 blah. The Justice Department said Halliburton had run two computer simulations of the Macondo Wells final cementing job to compare the impact of using six versus 21 centralizers. It said the results of these simulations indicated there was little difference. Well, for the 11 dead people and the countless fucking tragedy it's caused and the billions of dollars worth of damage that's never been settled and all the people that have lost their jobs and their livelihood... It didn't make that much of a difference. Not as long as Halliburton can keep its vast wealth and its enormous dick and rule all over us. Efforts to forensic... By the way, Dick Cheney's daughter is thinking about running for office in the United States. In agreeing to plead guilty, uh, efforts to forensically recover the original destroyed, displaced 3D computer simulations during ensuing civil litigation and federal criminal investigation were unsuccessful. 
because they destroyed them. In agreeing to plead guilty, Halliburton has accepted criminal responsibility. So here's their fine, uh, $200,000. Yeah, that'll make you sad. Uh, Halliburton has already made a voluntary contribution of $55 million to the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. For its part, BP put ahead $7.8 billion when it agreed last year to pay compensation for the oil spill. By the way, $55 million in Halliburton's uh, giant profit margin is as if you dropped a nickel on the ground and it just rolled away from you. You went, "Eh, I can live with that. Uh, In any case, uh, it could be funnier, but it's not. But I wanted to read that because it destroyed uh, the Gulf in America and Dick Cheney still walks the earth free. He's never been put in jail. He's never been to be naked in a cell. He hasn't been sent to Russia in exile like Bradley Manning and Edward Snowden. Uh, this is an article from a Gary Young from the um, uh, Guardian newspaper from last week. America cares for you until you start asking questions. This is a, a, um, an editorial he wrote. Zimmerman's acquittal of the man who shot Trayvon Martin and was given his gun back the next day after the trial was over. Yep. How are we allowed to be a country? Is the most challenging because this... Thank you. I appreciate that. That wasn't supposed to be funny. Because this ostensibly was the judicial system working as it should. The acquittal on grounds of self-defense has essentially means an unarmed boy has no legal protection against an armed man who, ignoring the advice of the police, decides to follow and shoot him. The jury faithfully upheld the law. It confirms the suspicion that the law is deeply selective in terms of who it seeks to protect and pursue. Halliburton has to plead guilty to destroying government. Oh, did anyone at Halliburton go to jail? Did anyone at British Petroleum go to jail? Eleven people died. Eleven people died. And no one went to jail. And, and they're fighting paying the fines at all times. To those who call the version of the all-powerful, all-caring state of little choice but to demonize those who oppose it, they assume their power is on the basis that they are best qualified to know it's best for the public, even when the public thinks differently. Those who challenge such hubris are dealt with severely. The enemy and the NSA scandal is not those who are spying on you and lying about it, but the ones who tell you about it. The criminal in the Manning case is not the soldiers who murder innocent civilians and laugh about it, or the politicians who sent them to war, but the young man who exposes their crimes. Bradley Manning was kept naked in a cell. Bush and Blair have never done anything but be rich and successful and have book tours. They gave George W. Bush a library. I wish there was irony in that. (laughs) A library. Now, if you would keep Bush and Blair naked in a cell, that would be the best reality show you could ever put on BBC. I would never cry like Stephen Burkhoff watching that if it was tonight on Celebrity Douchebag. George W. Bush and Tony Blair naked in a cell covered with orange marmalade. Their hands have been tied behind their backs, so the only way they can get sustenance is to lick the marmalade off each other's man bags. Uh, That's what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? Um, I think, and two uh, two days, three days ago, uh, uh, before this uh, podcast, um, President Obama said, Edward Snowden broke the law. He's not a hero. Really? Who can I have as a hero then? You tell me. Is George W. Bush supposed to be my hero? Because he saved us, remember? Because he protected us? Because after 9-11, there was no terror, except there was all over the world endlessly and still goes on. And Iraq is a complete flaming fucking mess in Syria. And all the things he set in motion with his fucking horrible agenda and fake-ass war. Is that who's supposed to be my hero? Um, I prefer the private who fucking squealed and broke his oath. But he's a criminal. Uh Uh-huh. So was Oscar Schindler. So was Harriet Tubman. You know what I'm saying? You have to break the law sometimes 
in order not to be the most immoral piece of fuck that ever walked the face of the fucking earth. And that's what Dick Cheney and George Bush and President Obama and Tony Blair and David Cameron and all of them are. They have the guilt of the world and the blood of fucking innocence on their hands and they're never going to do time for it and they're never, ever, ever going to say they're sorry. Bradley Manning apologized to the court the other day and said, I'm sorry I broke the law. I've never heard George W. Bush say that. Instead of me, <laughs> it's crazy. Thank you. Is it going to happen? No. Can we keep pressure on them all the time? Fuck yeah. How do we do that? Don't vote for anyone. Uh, campaign for stuff you like. All politics are local, as you know. If some shit's going down in your neighborhood, like the ceilings are falling in restaurants, or they're building a fucking boondoggle tram in front of your business and it's killing your business, that's when you fucking sue, and that's when you organize and shit like that. Uh, you don't have to keep these cocksuckers in office. Because they, they are so afraid of us, you can't imagine how afraid of us they are. Otherwise, they wouldn't be banishing people. Who's supposed to be a hero, right? Uh, Obama said uh, Snowden's not a hero. He's banished to Russia. And our attorney general said, if he comes back home, we promise not to torture or execute him. Well, there's a fucking friendly offer. Come on home! Come on back. We promise not to hang you upside down and stick a cattle prod up against your man sack. Don't you want to come back? The state is right to be worried. For while it has aggregated power, it has failed to garner the influence to sustain or justify it. Manning said he hoped that releasing the cables, he would spark worldwide discussion, debates, and reforms. The leaks informed the Arab Spring, revealing the venality of the leaders and the complicity of the U.S. When Snowden came out as a whistleblower, he said his greatest fear is that nothing will change. As Obama moves to modestly reform the NSA, the public he claims to be protecting shows growing support for Snowden. Neither the government nor the judicia, judici, judici, neither the government nor the judges have been able to point and this is a good one here has been able to point to a single credible example of how its secrecy neglect deception or persecution in these cases has protected anybody or anything you tell me when the government's allowed to do this shit at complete laissez-faire free will they do whatever they want we're not protected from terrorists. We're not protected from anything. Ceilings are falling. Infrastructure is crumbling. Bridges and roads don't exist anymore. Healthcare is being cut. There's austerity for everyone except the rich. When they insist such measures are crucial for security, they evidently mean security of the state, not for the people who lived in it. Following Zimmerman's acquittal, Obama was keen to point out, America's a nation of laws. Nobody doubts that. What is less clear is whether it is a nation of justice. Uh, it is not a nation of justice. Um, and I think we found that out time and time and time again. And the disappointing part is, I don't think Obama's a bad guy. I think in his heart he knows that he's going to have to suck a giant turd in purgatory. <laughs> he's a Harvard Law professor. He's a Harvard Law professor. Edward Snowden's not a hero. Mm -hmm. I think he is. And it doesn't matter whether he had personal gain in mind or whether Bradley Manning was misled by the evil WikiLeaks people and shit like that. Isn't it exciting that we live in an age where the computer is such a powerful tool that it shakes the governments of the world to the very foundation of their fucking soul? That they lay quivering in bed at night and all they can think about is spying on us more and fucking us over more because a few fucking hackers. And that's how old-fashioned, out of it, out of touch, and completely incompetent the governments of the world are. That they aren't able to do what a 19-year-old fucking private is able to do or a 38-year-old highly cleared spy is able to do which is reveal secrets to the fucking world. And these secrets need to be revealed. We're supposed to live in a clear and open democracy. We're not supposed to be living in Russia in the 70s. Uh, and that, 
That, to me, is the point of everything. I think I've gone on a little too long. There may not be any time for any more questions. <laughs> I like to end on a high note, but I'm happy to end on a sour note as well. <laughs> because it is a rainy night here, and it's also a very warm night, so there's that sort of Cambodian killing fields air outside, <laughs> which is so appropriate. Instead, let me just say this. Neil, cue up that Patti Smith song, because Patti Smith had quite a lot to say, and this one's called Till Victory. Uh, that people, as Patti Smith said, uh, have the power, and never don't believe that. We do, and I didn't mean to use a double negative there. Believe that. We have the power. Uh, the government doesn't have the power. The government's quaking at their boots. They're based on us. And as George Orwell said, if the proletariats stuck up, they could shake off the government like fleas off a fucking dog. My name's been Greg Proops. This is the smartest man in the world. Uh, you've been the smartest crowd in the world. I love you so much. If they, every page that you turn to be a satchel page, may every dollar Rings for you to be a cool pop of power. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're very bond. Crank this one up, Neil.